Thank you very much. How many of you, I'm going to have you raise your hands here, all right? How many of you are big Olympic fans? You love the Olympics. You, you watch, you follow it. I'm not. I, I like it, and I'll kind of keep track of it. I'll keep track of how many medals the U.S. has won. Every once in a while, I'll turn it on, keep it in the background. But I don't, it's not something I look forward to. It's more something, it's like, oh, the Olympics start this week. Cool. I didn't realize that. It just comes along. I'm more into the World Cup. Now, the World Cup, I will follow. Maybe not this year, because we won't be in it, but I like the World Cup. But the point is that the Olympics, whether, whether I follow them intensely, like some of you in here do, or not, they're, they're a big deal. Even someone like me who doesn't necessarily care about it, they, they get my attention. I'll, I'll check the scores. I'll have it going sometimes. I'll see what's going on. The Olympics are a huge deal. And as an athlete, the Olympics are a, a huge deal. It's to be at the peak, to compete in the Olympics is to be at the peak, the pinnacle of your career. To be the best in the world or competing against the best in the world. And this week started the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea. If you weren't aware, they're going on. So the road to becoming an Olympic athlete, however, it's not easy. Right? We look on that screen and we see them competing or we see them standing on that um, podium after winning and we think that's great that's awesome but it wasn't an easy process we don't see everything that went in behind the scenes in fact it's a painful process it's a process full of sacrifice to become an olympic athlete you have to train your body you have to train your mind you're limited to a very rigid schedule you have people telling you When to sleep, how much to sleep, when to eat, how much to eat, what to eat. You have to sacrifice your free time. You have to sacrifice your family time. You have to spend a lot of time in the gym building muscle. You have to practice the same thing over and over and over and over, building muscle memory. In fact, in order to help Olympic athletes train, there's even Olympic facilities around, training facilities around the United States where these athletes can go and they can be with their coach and they can live on site for an amount of time. And that way, every single minute of every day is planned. It's a grueling and it's a painful process. It's a sacrificial process. Yet, it is necessary. And I think that we would all say when we see them competing in front of the world, when we see them standing on the podium, I think they would say, and I think we would say, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth the pain. It's worth the process that they have to go through. It's interesting. The Bible actually compares the Christian life to the training of an athlete in several passages. In fact, it's Paul specifically who returns time and time again to this picture, this illustration. And like an athlete, what we see is that as believers, we are called, even expected, to grow. We're expected to train ourselves for godliness. The Christian life is not always easy. However, the end result, 
is worth the pain. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 16. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. This morning we're going to see that the pursuit of holiness is hard work. The Christian life is not easy. It is painful. But it is, we, but it is what we as believers have been called to. And in the end, it is worth it. 1 Peter 1. 13 to 16. It says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God as we've sung this morning, as we focused on how great you are, how unchanging you are, how powerful that you are. And God, you are an unchanging God and your word is an unchanging word and we thank you for the word of God that you have given us. We pray this morning as we open your word that you would guide our hearts and our minds, that you would give me boldness to proclaim your truth Give me clarity of mind and clarity as I speak. And I pray that you be glorified uh, through this time together. Your spirit would work in each one of us using this time, uh, not what I say, but your word, to mold us into the image of your son. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we turn to 1 Peter. Peter is writing uh, to what we we know they're believers. We know where they are. They're scattered around Asia Minor, or what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and we think that they are most likely Gentiles, it seems, from, from language that is used throughout First Peter. That's, uh, I would fall in the fact that they're probably most likely Gentiles. So Peter's writing to Gentile believers. And the theme of First Peter, the thing he goes back to time and time again, is persecution. They're facing intense persecution. And Peter is writing to them to encourage them. To encourage them to stand strong, to grow in the faith, to progress. Even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, don't lose faith. The historical background, the reason for this persecution, goes back to the fact that Rome has burned. I think we've all heard the story growing up in history class or uh, in Bible school about when Rome burned. Many believe, even in this time, that Nero himself burned the city of Rome. It was known that Nero had uh, what is sometimes said as a lust, an extreme desire to build. He wanted to build Rome the way that he wanted it to look. But there was a problem. Rome was already built. And it just happened to conveniently burn down for him so that he could rebuild it. So everyone thinks that Nero has burned Rome. And the backlash is great. Nero's desire to build has ruined people's lives, their businesses. So as you can imagine, the backlash is great. The people are mad. So Nero has to find a scapegoat. To shift the blame off of himself, Nero blames the Christians. And in this time, they're an easy target. They're already disliked by many people in Rome. For several reasons, including the fact that in that time they're seen as as connected to the Jewish people, very tightly connected. Also, 
they're seen as, as, they're seen as having hostility to Roman culture. So they're already a disliked people. They're an easy target. And so when Nero turns the focus on the church, it begins in a, time, a period of intense persecution. Persecution so intense that it spills out of Rome into the countryside, across, over into Asia Minor, where these believers are. And Peter is writing to these believers, facing this persecution, to encourage them. He starts off in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 12, by reminding them of the great salvation that God has provided in Christ. In fact, one thing that you'll notice as you read through 1 Peter, specifically chapter 1, uh, is the future focus. Which makes sense given the background that we've just seen. These people are facing intense persecution. And Peter is writing to encourage them. So what does he say? He says, look to the future. Look look to what's coming. It's going to get better. God is a faithful God. We see that even in the first 12 verses. Even when he's talking about salvation, he looks to the future. To when salvation is complete. When our faith has become sight. When we are glorified. When we've reached heaven. So it's a future focus. Looking to what God is going to do. And it makes sense. We do the same thing. When someone's going through a difficult time, we say, it'll get better. Just, just wait till the snow leaves. Right? It's going to get better. We call people to look ahead. It's exactly what Peter's doing here. And then we get to verse 13 and he shifts his focus and he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. That should be a familiar phrase. In fact, it it harkens back to Ephesians 6, the armor of God. In verse 614, we're told to gird up. The picture I, I think many of us are familiar with of girding up is back in this time, all right, they didn't dress like we dress today. The men, they, they wore robes. And as I'm sure the ladies could tell us, it's not always easy to do things in a dress or a skirt or a robe, as they would call it in that day. <laughs> and so when it came time to get to work, when it came time to get busy, what they did was they would pull their robe up and tuck it into their belt to gird it up. It frees their legs. They can now run. They can now bend over. They, they just they have freedom of movement. Whether they're going to battle or whether they're staying home and they're doing some kind of work, to gird up is to prepare for whatever you're doing. In fact, the ESV, the ESV um, translates the beginning of verse 13. It says, prepare your mind for action. It's the idea to gird up your mind. Prepare your mind for for action. Say so that's good, but how do we do this? How, how do I prepare my mind for action? How do I gird up my mind? Right? It's one thing to say, hey, prepare for war or prepare for work. Right? All I gotta do is grab my sword, my sword and my shield, or, or grab my, my hammer, put on my work boots. I'm good to go. I'm prepared. But how do I prepare my mind? By focusing on the truth. Focusing on reality. Be real. I think we all have known someone 
whether it was in real life or seen him on a movie, a romantic, right? Someone who always looks to the ideal in life. They're not being real. They're not focusing on reality. Someone who's more in love with the idea of love than they are committed to an actual relationship. And it's difficult for people like that to have a real relationship. Because when things get difficult, when things get unideal, life's not easy. It's not the way they imagined, and it gets difficult for them. That's kind of the picture here. How do you prepare your minds for action? You focus on the truth. Be real. Our love for God, our obedience of God, is not based on an emotional infatuation with God. Rather, our love and obedience of God must be based in a deep, intimate understanding and knowledge of who God is. We must be real with ourselves. We must go to the truth. Our minds are prepared because we know the truth. We're not in love with the idea of a God who who loves us and cares for us. Rather, we know this God who loves us and who cares for us. And we run to him. We run to his word. Going back to our illustration of an athlete, if you spend any time around sports, one of the phrases you'll hear is, get your mind in the game. The, the idea of that phrase, what they're trying to communicate is, focus. Focus, right? You, you could have all the skill in the world, but if when you step on the court or the field and your mind isn't there, if you're thinking about something else, you're going to lose. Get your mind in the game. Focus on the reality of where you are, of what's going on. I'm taking classes over at Faith, and so I spend a lot of time driving back and forth, and I like to listen to sports radio. And this week, on one of the uh, stations I was listening to, they were giving Jordan Spieth was giving an interview. And Jordan Spieth, for those of you who don't know him, he's a PGA um, player. (laughs) He's a golfer. All right, so he plays professional golf. And they were just kind of messing around with him and they were saying, hey Jordan, do you ever just, do you ever just go out on the course and just play golf to relax? Do you ever just take it easy on the course with your friends having a good time? And Jordan said, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But he said, basically no. And he, he literally said, when I go on the course, the problem is that I can't, I can't unengage my mind. He, he so trained himself. That when he steps on a golf course, his mind is ready for action. It is immediately engaged. And he said, when, when, I, when I hit a shot, if it doesn't go where I want it to go, I immediately start working, well, what did I do wrong? What was wrong with the mechanics of my swing? Where did I go wrong? He tries to figure it out. He tries to fix it. He can't go out on a course and just play for fun. His mind automatically engages because he is focused on that. He has trained his mind for action. So prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. How do we do do this? Peter gives us uh, two pointers. He starts with be sober. Prepare your mind for action. How? By being sober. Have control. When we think of sobriety, the opposite we think of is drunk, being under the influence of something else. To be sober is to have control. To not be influenced. Be grounded in God's word so that you can face temptation and persecution with clarity. 
So that when temptation and persecutions come, you don't get drunk on possibilities. You don't get drunk on self-pity. What I mean by that is how many times have you faced a difficult time in your life? I know I have several times. And when that difficult time comes, what's natural for us? What's easy? We start thinking of possibilities. Well, what if this happens? What if this doesn't happen? What if it goes this way? And that causes us to not think clearly. In the midst of that trial, in the midst of that temptation, we don't think clearly because we're not focused on God's word. Rather, we are focused on possibilities. Or we're focused on self-pity. Why me? Why is God doing this to me again? Doesn't God know what I've been through? It's like a haze in our mind. We're under the influence of self-pity, of selfishness. And we lose clarity. So we must be grounded. We must be sober. Being grounded in God's word so you can face temptation and persecution with clarity. One way to do this is to have verses. Run to God's word. Have verses that time and time again you return to to remind you of who you are, who God is, and what he has done for you in Christ. For me, one of those verses is Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a verse that I return to weekly, if not daily. No matter what I'm going through, that reminds me that for me to live, it's not me. It's not my comfort. It's Christ. And if I die, it's gain. So it doesn't matter. Whether it's a good thing that I'm going through, Christ is working. Whether it's a bad thing, Christ is working. For me to live is Christ. Other verses would be Philippians 4, 4 4-7. Where we're told to rejoice, don't worry, pray. And there's a promise that the peace of God which surpasses understanding will be ours in Christ. The peace of God. 1 Peter 5-7, cast all your cares on Him for He cares for you. Romans 8, the entire chapter. Starting off with verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. To the very end, when we're promised eternal security in Christ, there is no one that can pluck them out of my hand. These are passages, these are verses that we can cling to. In times of temptation, in times of struggle, in times of persecution, we can run to these verses and we can remind ourselves of the truth of God's word. And these are verses that will keep us sober. They will keep our focus Clearly, on the Word of God, on the Son of God. So be sober. Secondly, in verse 13 at the end, he says, And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on future grace. On grace that is to come. Grace is a word that is actually used in every single chapter of 1 Peter. And often when we discuss grace, many times we define it as God's unmerited favor. Which it is. It is God's unmerited favor. It's not earned. But grace also goes beyond that. It's God's unmerited favor at salvation before God. But it's also the strength to live each day. It's also divine power that equips us to live right. He gives us grace for each day. Grace to fight temptation. Grace to endure. 
And this grace is more sufficient. It is abundant than anything that we face. Whatever you're facing, whatever your struggle, whether it is persecution like these believers in 1 Peter that Peter's writing to, whether it's a life and death situation, God's grace is enough. As they see their friends dying, being tortured, thrown in jail unjustly, God's grace is enough. Or maybe it's just temptation, which is more likely in this room this morning. Maybe it's that one sin that struggled day in and day out. Maybe it's many sins. Whatever it is, God's grace is enough. He gives you the strength to endure. But it's not easy. It's never promised that it's easy. It's difficult. And it's painful. But the end result is worth it. Going back to our athlete, another phrase that you will often hear is no pain, no gain. If you don't go through the pain of training, you'll, you'll never gain the glory of victory. It's painful, but you do it for the result. It is worth it in the end. And it is that goal, it's that desire that drives you, that sustains you to carry on. Look to the end. Look to promised future grace. So again here, Peter is calling them to take their eyes off the present struggle, off of the present persecution. Don't focus on on the, the persecution of this short life. Rather, look to glory. Look to where God is calling us. Look to what God is doing and will do. He will give them the grace that they need for today, for tomorrow, and the day after that. And it's the same for us. We serve the same God and he gives us the same grace for each day. You can endure through persecution and you can face temptation with victory today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Because God gives us the grace. It is possible. But it's painful. Secondly, he goes on into verse 14. He says, As obedient children... Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're called to be holy. It's interesting, verse 14 kind of reminds me of Romans 12, 1 to 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed it's exactly what we see here don't be conformed to the world but be holy be transformed as obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance the world sinfulness don't be conformed the reality is that this is the reason that the pursuit of holiness is difficult This is why it's painful, because we have a sin nature. Sin is what is natural for us. We have a natural bent towards sin. So it's difficult, it's painful to be holy, to change. 
Our natural heart bent is toward the world. Even after salvation, it takes a tremendous amount of grace, of which we've just seen that we have plenty. It takes a tremendous amount of grace. It takes a tremendous amount of effort on our end to fight this temptation to be worldly. Sanctification is a painful process because conforming to the world is natural to us. It's like driving a car with bad alignment. You take your hand off the steering wheel, where does that car go? It starts to drift. It's, it's natural for the car to go that way. It starts to go that way. You have to purposefully hold that steering wheel. You have to purposefully drive that car straight. It takes effort. In a perfect world with no sin, holiness would not be painful. It would be natural to us. But in this world, it's a painful process. But it's a process, again, which God gives us the grace for. Be holy. Don't be transformed. Verse 15, that's he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. We have an example in holiness. It is God who calls us to be holy because he is holy. If you're reading through the Bible this year, you've probably recently gone through Leviticus at some point in the last few weeks. And this is a phrase that comes up time and time again. Be holy, for I am holy. As God is giving the Israelites their laws. Be holy, for I am holy. God is still holy. He is still holy. And we are still called to be holy. Despite the nagging and the pushback from our old nature, we must strive after holiness. Because our new nature demands it. Our old nature is pulling us back, trying to get us to drift, but our new nature, in Christ, we are a new creation. And our new nature demands change. Proverbs 4.23 tells us to guard our hearts. Whatever you fill your heart, whatever you fill your mind with, is what will come out in your life. Here we see that we're called to be holy. We've already seen in verse 13, to gird up our mind, to be sober, to rest on future, to hope in future grace. Be holy. Fill your mind with the word of God, with the truth. Be holy. Are you pursuing holiness this morning? Are you pursuing this world? Are you being conformed to the world? Are you being transformed? How do we do this? How, how do we be holy? How do we pursue holiness? How are we sanctified? It's through the word of God. We see here at the end of chapter 1, actually later in this section, starting in verse 23, it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. All flesh is as grass, And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel is preached 
to you. We've been saved the eternal word of an eternal God. And therefore, we can be sure that our salvation is eternal. It's interesting, he uses the idea of a seed, having been born again, born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God. It's a seed that starts small and it grows. It is through the eternal word of an eternal God that we've been saved, and it's through that eternal word that we are sanctified or made holy. Again, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is another passage that talks about the fact that we are made holy, that we are changed into the image of God as we behold God in his word. As we behold who he is, who he is, we are changed into the image of God. So be holy. What are you filling your mind with? Are you filling your mind with the word of God? Are you, you, are you setting yourself up to succeed? Or are you filling your mind with the things of this world? Are you being conformed? And ultimately we see the goal. Because it's written, be holy for I am holy in verse 16. The goal is to be holy. Glorification. To be holy is command, but it's also a promise. It's not something that we can do in and of ourselves. It is God who provides the grace for each day. And it is God who will ultimately glorify us when we reach heaven. Glorification is the goal. This is the realization of what we saw back in verse 13, of setting your hope fully on future glory, future grace. That happens at glorification. When we reach heaven. It's not possible here on earth. We're still called to pursue it. We're still called to, to be fighting temptation. To endure through, temp, through temptation and through persecution. But we won't reach it. We won't be glorified completely until we reach heaven. Sanctification takes work on our end. It's hard work, studying and memorizing God's word, surrounding ourselves, filling our minds with the right things, denying the flesh. It is difficult work, but it is ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit in us through the word of God. So in conclusion, the pursuit of holiness is painful. Holiness hurts in this sinful world. It takes work, and it takes determination, and it takes faith. Yet it is the work that we are called to as believers. And just as an Olympic athlete who, who focuses, who looks towards the prize, so we are called to focus, to prepare our minds, and to look toward the prize. To be sober, reminding ourselves of the realities of God's word. So I would challenge you this this week to pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. By surrounding yourselves, burying yourself in the word of God. Spend extra time in God's word this week with a heart that is open to the work of the Spirit in your life through the word of God. And then glory and watch as God molds you, as God changes you into his image. If you want to grow, you have to get into God's word. That's what it comes down to. If you want to be holy, you have to spend time with a holy God 
and his holy word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us. We thank you that it is true. Thank you for the promises that we have. And God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that it is not in our own strength that we are called to pursue this, but that uh, you save us and then you equip us for success. Pray that you'd be glorified in each one of our lives, that this week that we would take the challenge, we would spend time in your word, and that as your spirit works in each one of us, that we would be open, that we would listen, and that you would change us. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.